Our scripture reading today is Daniel 4, 28 through 37. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever." For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay at his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you again, Scarlett. Well, it is uh, my privilege to be able to teach you this morning, and I often get to, um, every now and then, we have, uh, I travel back and forth, or we have a guest, but I'm typically here preaching, again, if you're new here this morning, and I'm glad to be able to open the word to you, because we're looking at kind of a new series this morning. Um, And I I remember when I was traveling some time back in um, Paris, and as I was there, enjoying uh, Paris for what it is, all the beauty and architecture and history and such. Uh, I remember traveling to see Napoleon's tomb. Some of you may have been there and done this. And if you go, uh, you walk towards it and it's just this glorious building. And you're taking steps up and you can see the detail um, uh, from the columns to the, the ceiling, to everything about it, it's just, it's just magnificent. And as you walk in, you, you just can't kind of do one of these and you look up and just as much of those buildings have been, uh, the ceiling is covered with, with glorious painting, uh, things on the walls. Um, it, it just, you, you feel the splendor of this place. But you kind of look down and there's a hole in the middle of the floor where you kind of walk up and you see. And you kind of think, okay, well, maybe this is just kind of one of those uh, you know, uh, where, where maybe they have, you just kind of look up and down and you kind of walk up to the, this hole and you look down and there is a casket down at the bottom, kind of elevated a little bit up. And you start reading and learning about the history of this tomb. And what it is, is actually Napoleon, that's his tomb. And the reason that he had it structured that way in, in architecture was that even in death, listen to this, talk about Napoleon complex, even in death, He wanted people to bow their head to him, even in death. 
So that when you come in, almost as a parlor trick, it's like you come in and you kind of bow your head and there's Napoleon. You know, and people down below on that lower floor are actually looking up to him. It was a very fascinating thing. You know, as we begin this series, it's a series you can even see on the cover of your bulletin that's talking about anchor um, doctrines of the faith. We're celebrating this year as a celebration. You may not know uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, but the, the word reform theology of the Reformation, 500 years ago, uh, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. He was an Augustinian monk. And from that came a reformation to bring back, to come back to the major tenets of the faith. Many of those you may have heard, they're called the solas. And all it means in Latin is only. We gotta go back to scripture, Christ alone, faith alone. And one of the hallmark solas or onlys was soli deo gloria, to God be alone the glory. To him be alone the glory, majesty, honor, and splendor. It would be easy for us to talk about that. And it's something that we use, maybe language, that we talk about God's majesty, his glory. We even read it in uh, kind of the call to worship this morning. But what does that really mean? You know, we read this passage, and this is a very good passage for us to, to ask that question. Because Daniel is in the midst of a, an environment, and Daniel, who the book is title about is the main character who previous to this passage had just warned king, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, of these dreams. He just warned him and, and, and he brought Daniel in and they said, can you interpret these dreams? And he warned King Nebuchadnezzar that there will be humiliation for you. That all the majesty, all the splendor, all the pomp and circumstance that you have is going to come crashing down. And yet you can see from this that he continued where he was, that Nebuchadnezzar believed his own stuff. He even, you know, in every way, wanted people to bow their head to him. He wanted to be recognized. And Daniel is a very important character for us. This passage in particular is because it forces us to ask the question, in a world, and particularly a city, as Missy even mentioned earlier, in a city with all sorts of glory surrounding it and continually building up into it, how do we make sense of our glory and what does it really mean to know that God alone be the glory? Is that a reality for us? Is that true? Or do we simply, as Tim Keller once said, plagiarize his glory? Do, do we just kind of, uh, we take it and we utilize it for our own well-being, our own getting ahead, our own feeling better about ourselves. But what does it really mean to understand to God be alone the glory and to faithfully live, not just saying, oh, I'm terrible. That's not what's happening here. But to actually say, I can, I can celebrate the parts of where I have done well. There is glory from me. But yet, no, it all is a reflection as the moon reflects the sun of something greater, of a, a greater burning, of a greater size, and of a greater importance. So we're going to look at just two questions about that this morning. Why we want glory, and why does God alone get the glory? What does that mean? So why do we want it, and why does God alone get it? I think it's broken up in this passage well for us, and why we want the glory. Now, from his roof, Nebuchadnezzar, as it says, he's up there walking around at the end of 12 months. So imagine this. Daniel interprets his dream. 
He has heard this and 12 months go by before anything really happens. Imagine the patience of God in that to deliver this. And he's up, he's standing on the roof, he's looking at things, right? As it says, he was on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and he's surveying. And let me tell you what he was probably seeing. As he cast his vision out, he was probably looking at, number one, the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world, amazing. He built them actually for his wife as a gift. And he's seeing the, the beautiful culture that he's developed, this incredible gardens. He's also seeing multiple temples that he's built for multiple religions, just things out in Babylon that he's thinking, yes, I'm, I've actually care for where other people are. And finally, he's probably seeing another structure uh, to give you an idea that is really powerful in terms of the city wall. They said the city wall was so strong and so big that on the top of it, a chariot with four horses pulling it could pass by one another on the top of it. It was so wide and so strong that his security, the beauty, the culture, the power, he is soaking in it of what he has done and what he has produced. And it's easy to do that. It's easy to see what we've built up and actually exchange it and say, and that is, it's magnificent. There are, it's not to demean it. In fact, it's interesting that this passage ends in a different way than we might expect. Everything's restored. It's not because it is bad so much, but what is happening is the exchange of that glory, that we're meant to want it. We're meant to pursue it and to have it. But our concept of glory is often a need of recognition, need, of recognition, need to be seen, need to, to know that we're wonderful and powerful and someone. In fact, the, the word for glory in Hebrew means heavy. It actually means of weight, of substance. And we know oftentimes when we feel it, we feel like we're around something that gives us glory or we hold something that gives us glory. We feel like maybe we have some substance to us. Maybe looking out on that roof of his and maybe looking at our world, we find ourselves in a place where, you know, I mean something. I, I'm, I'm someone <laughs> because of what is in front of us. And it really begs the question, what gives you glory? What is it that draws that out in you? What do you look at? What do you survey? What, what do you cast your vision to, to actually say, you know, this gives me weight. This gives me, this makes me someone. This, this actual instance of him walking on the roof is interesting because if you look in the Old Testament, you see other characters, probably the, the leading of which is David, who is on their roof and similar things tend to appease them. They find themselves in a place where they're in a position of security, power, position, and they lose who they are in those things. I remember even just brushing up with this, you can find this happens to us very similarly. I remember Megan, my wife and I were at Restoration Hardware one day and we're sitting in there just walking, talking to somebody helping us just in the mall, no, no big in, you know, just kind of like, and all of a sudden, the person helping us says, you need to know Johnny Depp was just in here. And we're like, oh, okay. You know, and then immediately, and we're kind of looking around like, am I gonna bump into Johnny Depp and ask him about sofas? Like, well, how's this gonna work? She starts telling us that when people come in of great magnitude, we have a code word called pineapple. 
And we just start saying pineapple over the radio. And we're like, well, pineapple, pineapple, you know, are you saying it now? You know, so interesting how much, even in those kind of instances of people, places or things, as we even prayed earlier, that create this sense of wanting to be drawn up into something greater of glory, of making ourselves to have some substance. C.S. Lewis said it so well as he did, and he wrote this essay called The Weight of Glory for this reason. He said, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and news from a country we have never visited. It's this longing. We are meant to experience glory, but they are a scent. They are a shadow. They are not the full weight of what we're supposed to experience. They are, in some sense, what other, other people in the Old and New Testament call empty glory at times. And what that means is empty, this weightlessness. And that's what most of us feel in our insecurity. That's what we feel when we want to have substance. In our pursuit of this, we miss it. Here's what's interesting about what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, right? He stands and he says, is this not great Babylon which I've built? My mighty power is a royal residence for, for the glory of my majesty. And don't you know, in those times, they had images of themselves promoting self. But what immediately happens, while the words were still in his mouth, a voice from heaven fell. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with beasts of the field. And it begins to describe what happens to him. Why in the world that? We should pause for a second, because this is an interesting question. Why would God not just remove the kingdom from him, but create him to be an animal, to actually allow him to experience the falling down so far that he's driven to be an animal. And in fact, many look at this passage and consider it what's called lycanthropy, if I can say that, lycanthropy, which is essentially him becoming like a wolf, like an animal. His hair grew long. He, for seven months, roamed like an animal and ate like an animal with the beasts. And so essentially what's happening to him, think about this. He is not just reduced to the image of God, which is what man is said to be in. He's reduced below the image of God. It's not only that the things that he worshiped to create substance for him reduced him, that God said, okay, you really wanna know what glory is. You really wanna have your heart satisfied in those things. I'm gonna reduce you lower than even the image that you were actually made for. In irony, even lower the image that you set up for yourself all over this country, you will be lower. What he's doing is saying, this is what happens to us when we try and create and make those things of glory have more weight than they should. They actually break the hearts of the worshipers. And we reduce ourselves to try and make them, think about this, make them work for us. We force them. We put so much effort into saying, no, you will not break my heart. You will give me something. You will make me someone. And we put into those things, whatever it may be, 
It could be a person. It could be a place. It could be a thing. We work hard to create those things. We exchange the creator for the creation in order to give us an image that we already have. Do you hear the irony? And yet what reflects us, what, how we know our image ultimately isn't in the creation. All of it is pointing up. God allows him to be in the lower parts of creation. And then finally, it's not till he looks up that he gains his reason. Isn't that odd? It's not until he casts his eyes upward, even physically, until he realizes who he is and who he is supposed to be, that there's an empty glory in it. It cannot hold weight because empty glory drives us and derives its only delight in us when we can try and make that thing significant. What is it in you that you do that for? Could, Could it be you are working so hard to receive affirmation from someone, a boss, a spouse, a friend, those around you, maybe you find yourself seeing other people receiving what you wish you had. Isn't it easy for us to be in positions like that? Especially here in a city that is very centered on music. Isn't it hard? It is so difficult not to look at what other people are being exalted in and wishing that we had the same. But is it breaking our heart in the process? Are we longing to see things and have things that are destroying us? Can we be honest to know that? In our businesses, in our friendships, what are we doing to those around us? And so it drives us to the question of, okay, if that's the fact, and it's then when he looks up to God, and then there's this whole Even Nebuchadnezzar himself says, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and reason returned to me and I blessed the most high. Why does God have glory over others? Okay, if if we just are looking at why things can't hold glory, we're now looking at why does God? Okay, let's be convinced of this. Where does Nebuchadnezzar go with it? As one commentator said about God's glory, the reality of his active presence is linked with the quality of his actions themselves. There is a quality that is very different in who God is. Very different. It could be, as many have argued before, to say, why does God want all this glory? Is is he just kind of a glory hog? (laughs) I mean, is he just incredibly the most self-centered being in the world? Or is he something else? Is he something greater of different quality? First, we need to ask that question. Is he? The first thing is, if God is the ultimate glory, the ultimate thing that holds weight, then wouldn't that be the ultimate thing that satisfies that longing that we have? Would we, in in our communication, our relationship with him, instead of our hearts being broken by empty glory, when we face the ultimate glory that we receive, wouldn't it actually give us weight and substance? Wouldn't we experience something different? And secondly, God is the only thing different than all others that is not self-centered in terms of his glory. He actually is the most glorified being, but he brings us up into it. This is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now think about this. As he begins to unravel almost this psalm-like song, let's look at it. He says, at the end of days, right? 
Uh, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and reason returned to me and blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. It is eternal. His glory is eternal. Football's back. I know we've watched a bunch of games. You may not be into football, but you know it's going on because you can hear the Vanderbilt horn going off. You can always, you know, watch everything you flip by. Even if you hate football, you're like, some of you are like, I hate this time of year. Some of you are like, this is the best time of year. Like the chill of the air comes and you go, where's the game? Where's the game? You know, like that's it. There's an interesting article that was written by Rich Cohen about, it's called A Journey to the End of Football. It was written a couple of years ago. It's really interesting the way he describes this. He took a journey through what is the NFL and football itself, and he wrote, he wrote this. Canton, which is where the NFL Hall of Fame is, the National Football League Hall of Fame, he said, Canton's Holy of Holies is a dimly lit circular room lined with busts of the anointed, starting with Sammy Ball and ending on and on. And for now, with Cortez Kennedy and Curtis Martin and others, I compared the mood in this room where grown men in their jerseys wander among the stone heads, somber, serious, even a little sad, to the mood at the National Memorials, the Lincoln Monument, say, where we bear witness to some crucial American moment. As I've hinted, football is a religion, a shared history of victories and defeats. It's all some people care about. Perhaps the sadness in the hall comes from the sense that even religions, especially pagan ones, can die. What a fascinating description of one of the most worshipped places of glory, I think, is interesting. I even had the opportunity recently to go speak again. Casey Kramer, who is on our staff, allowed me to go speak to the Titans for one of their chaplains, uh, chaplain services. And it was interesting for me to actually stop in what I was talking about and ask them, and they had not used to this. I said, you guys are probably not used to this. What do y'all think about what I'm saying? And I was talking about significance from Psalm 8. And to hear their questions back, saying, okay, this is all good, but we are in a position of such great glory and yet also wanting to be faithful. What does that look like? What does that mean? Because not all that we see on the press is what is happening with some of these people in those positions. They're really struggling with, I want to have glory, I want to reflect his glory, and yet I don't know how to do that in this position. Aren't we in that? Don't we ask that question? We may not be playing for a professional team. We are all in that space. We all want ourselves to look good. We all want that. But there's only one only one that to be admired and, and, and feared for his kingdom is eternal. Look, he never has to reboot it. He never has to renew it. There's not an ounce of his kingdom, of his power, of his glory that has to be reshuffled or, 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 or cared for again. It's, it, it, he doesn't have to guard it. It doesn't fade. There's no dim lit area for it. It is always what it is. And even at his highest points of being a ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, seeing all those things, those, even those three magnificent things that he has done, we've all hit a peak and felt the peak of our glory. And maybe we're seeking it again. But God never, ever, ever experiences that. God's glory never hits a peak and goes down. It is always what it is. 
It is always at its highest form. Even when we don't acknowledge it, it never changes. Isn't that the kind of God we want to serve? A God whose glory is way more powerful. And in comparison, even this passage says this here in verse 35, it says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Now he's not saying that everybody's worthless, but he's saying in comparison to God's glory, Nebuchadnezzar was thinking, how in the world can I be in comparison looking at anything that I've done? And isn't that the number one thing with glory is comparison. We want to compare ourselves to how well we're doing in something or where we are in something compared to everyone else in order for us to feel weight. This is why gossip is such a horrible thing because what we do in gossip talking about everyone else is to try and tear them down so we can maintain a position of glory and honor that is actually empty glory and vain conceit. It doesn't hold real, real weight. It's not as powerful. And we have to be careful of the ways that we do this. We have to be careful of those. It's, it's wise. Look at this. He, he does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that God's glory is not just powerful, but wise glory. It's so wise. It's connected. His glory is connected to all parts of his character in perfect unity. There's no part where we for, he forces his glory and it's disconnected from who he is as wise, unfolding his plan, unfolding his will and what is gonna be done around him. His glory is in and through everything. And it's never, it never leaves. His mercy is a part of that as well. And I think that's what's beautiful about this. Notice what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He isn't just struck down and said, you're gonna live the rest of your life like an animal. God actually, in his mercy, his wisdom restores Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I don't know as many, there are countless theologians on either side of this that say, okay, Nebuchadnezzar became a man of faith. And some say, no, he didn't. I have no idea. I've looked at both. There's nothing in here that really tells me that he did for sure or didn't. But what I do trust in is the fact that God raised him back up in his own glory for his own work in the city of Babylon, the one of considered the worst cities in quotes, even in the rest of the Bible, yet he raises him back up. What incredible mercy and wisdom for God to do that, to put him in that position. And then who is underneath him the whole time? Who's the name the, on the book? Daniel. He puts faithful people that never compromise the fact that Nebuchadnezzar has great glory, but there is one who always has greater glory, even when they are oppressed and persecuted. And what do they do? They don't leave the city and say, oh God, I can't believe Nebuchadnezzar, you raised him back up. They go back into it and serve him faithfully saying, God, to God be the glory alone. And even Nebuchadnezzar himself can't say that he holds the glory alone anymore. He begins to look at everything that he set up, all his glory through a different lens, through who he is in the presence of someone else better and bigger and of more quality than him. If you don't experience the awe of who God is, then it will not change the way that you see your own glory. 
Daniel is countless in images of this glory, countless. Right after this passage, Daniel starts to unfold image after image after image of glory. And it's picked up all through the New Testament, that book that many of you may avoid, but it is so glorious. Revelation is taken so much from Daniel. And right after this, in Daniel 7 and in chapter 10, these two passages, there's a description of, of God, of a man who's coming. It says his body is like beryl, which a beryl is a gem, a stone that emanates this just beauty. I even looked it up. I was like, what? tell me about beryl. I'm like, what is this? is this glorious stone that can take on all sorts of colors, but it it's, has this magnificent kind of uh, a transparent look to it. It's just it's rich and it reflects all sorts of light and color. It says in chapter 10, his face like appearing of li- like the appearance of lightning. Look, these are images, his, his, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms like, like legs and burnished bronze, arms and legs were like burnished bronze. Things that gleam, they're actually images to stir fear. Here's the point. These are a group of people who are asking the question, Who's going to rescue us from Persia? Who's going to deal with our enemies? Who's going, to deal, who's going to be bigger and stronger and better than those around us? Shouldn't we ask that question? Shouldn't we ask the question, is God really, is this God really big enough to handle the things in my life? Or do we consider him someone who just comes and goes and does certain things and we try and connect to him? Or is he really a God that enters into the places where you and I go, I don't know if he can really do anything about this. I I really don't know if he's strong enough, he's powerful enough to deal with the grief that I have or the anxiety that I experience. It, can he really get in there? Is he really? This is what they needed. And do you know what it's reflecting? It's reflecting what happened in Matthew chapter 17. When after Jesus had just talked about who he was, it says that he, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking. Jesus himself is being described here. The glory as of God put in flesh, and yet so bright, so amazing, that no welder's goggles could work this. No amount of eclipse goggles could keep you from seeing that and be terrified. It says all of them, in the Old and New Testament, fell down at him as dead. The awe of Jesus, the glory and power and might of who he is should shake us to the core because we should be knowing that we're in the presence of greatness. And Jesus had to come in flesh to deal with that. He had to come in that form to show us that. And yet, what does he do? Very different, very different from Nebuchadnezzar. He humbles himself. He humbles himself willingly so that he would be exalted. He goes down to the cross and takes it up willingly so that his glory could be manifest. Look, this table we're coming to now is that table. This is why his disciples thought, you're crazy. 
They thought he was a lunatic of sorts and constantly even said, why do you keep talking about the cross? Why do you keep talking about death? There's no glory in death. What are you doing? Are you just going to be a martyr? They didn't want to be a part of a campaign that was going to fail because of his death. And isn't that what we think? You know, this table is not a table of failure. This is a table of glory. This is a table of honor and awe. We don't come to a table like this, and many of us often do, trying to imagine that what's it like for Jesus to just die. We actually need to come to this table in awe, in reverence, and in some way quaking because this God, the one who shone so bright that when you experience death, if many of you have experienced that in the face in some sense, he is even more terrifying than that. And yet he calls you to eat with him, to say, come into this, this is my glory, and this is your glory because you eat with me. That's what it really means. If you're here this morning and this table makes no sense to you, maybe you think this is great, I like hearing about this, but I don't know if I can believe or trust or put my real trust in this one who is glorified. I would encourage you to stay in your seat or even come forward and receive prayer, but don't, don't take of this table in a way of just because everybody else is. Take of this table knowing that you need someone bigger, that you must submit everything that's going on in your world to someone who actually gave their body and blood and yet is now even, not even death could hold him. That is the one we need to be near. That is the glory we need to be given. So with that, let's stand together. Let's read our liturgy together this morning.